0: for coming today, I want to imagine, you have help you help me imagine for a moment that I have this superpower that I'm going to take away any character trait that you have that you don't like. So in your mind right now, come up with a list of five limitations about who you are that you would like removed from your life. Ready? Go. Five of them. Don't do them for one another. are that that's a fairly easy exercise. As soon as I say, you, what would you like to get rid of? What would you like to change? There's all kinds of things that start coming to your mind. Now, imagine the opposite is true. Imagine that I have the ability to bestow and magnify on you um, things that are inside of you that you really do well to make them even great. So I want you to come up with a list now of five things that you do really, really good. Better than most people you know even. Ready? Go. Now, I will bet that most of us in the room, not everyone in the room, but most of us in the room came up with the first list much quicker than we came up with the second list. And I said, things that you have in terms of limitations, ah. Oh, well, I'd like to be taller. I'd like to be smarter. I'd like to be lighter, thinner, bigger, more funny. Able to talk in front of people. To not talk so much. All kinds of things. We are very, very good at, at listing and understanding where we are limited. And we grow up putting all of our emphasis on that. Around the limitations that we have. I hope that after today, you're going to actually see the Advent stories and particularly the Magi in the story. You're going to begin to see them differently. But more importantly, I hope that you'll see out of the Magi that actually one of the great opportunities for God to do things in you is in your limitations. You're super familiar with the Magi. In fact, that's part of our problem. Most of what you know about them is not true. But I want to take us through this Matthew chapter 2 passage and then be thinking about limitations and how the Magi have all kinds of limitations on their life and yet they don't let them stop them. Let me pray for us. We'll jump in Matthew 2 verse 1. God, thanks a lot for the opportunity to gather. We ask now that your Holy Spirit would come and teach us. Not just teach us facts of the story of the advent, although that would be well and good. But God, we ask that those those truths that we see would transfer into applications to change us, that we would begin to think about ourselves more in line with how you think of us and think about those around us more in line with how you see them. May that be true in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now there is so much in this, in this one little short verse. First, we've got some indicators about when this is happening. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod. King Herod is called Herod the Great. He is the most significant uh, king of Israel For 400 years all around him. He he accomplishes amazing things. He has an alliance with Rome that empowers him militarily. He is just this fantastic king unless you live in Israel. Because he's a scoundrel for sure if you live there. Now, it says that it was during the time of King Herod. So Christ is born while King Herod is still reigning. And we, ca- we have some uh, extra-biblical resources that help us that let us know that King Herod died in the year of the eclipse, is what um, Josephus tells us. And there's actually evidence in, um, in extra-biblical resources that say there were eclipses at several different points. There was one in 5 B.C., there was one in 4 B.C., there was actually two in 1 B.C., So somewhere in there, this is the time that Jesus is born. Before Herod is gone, we missed the date. So the church sanctioned some historians to try to figure out how to do our calendar over a thousand years ago now, I think. And when that happened, they missed it. So we're a few years off if we were truly going to be starting at ground zero. But that's not a big deal. We're used to it now. Now, I know I'm going to mess with the nativity scene, but there's also something else that comes on. The magi come um, when Jesus, after Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Now, here's the deal. I know this is messing with you, but the magi and the shepherds don't go together. Now, everybody's nativity scene at home, including mine, all of mine, have the shepherds and the magi there at the same time, Right? In fact, some of y'all, you already knew this, and you'll put your shepherds, um, you'll put the shepherds at the scene and you'll put the magi on another piece of furniture somewhere else. Like they're on their way, right? Well, they're not there at the same time. Let me give you four reasons. There's at least four good reasons why this is true. Number one, Matthew in verse 11, I'll show you in a second, but in Matthew in verse 11 uses a word for child, that is literally, it means child, not infant or newborn, like Luke would use. Secondly, Jesus's family is residing in a house. According to Matthew, when the, when the Magi show up, they're living in a house. They are not in the barn, in the manger. Third, Herod's edict to, do, to kill all of the Male children under two years old to his soldiers after the, after the Magi slip out, um, it gives us an indication he would be very particular there. He wouldn't want to slaughter more people than normal, although he doesn't really care that much. But he gives them some instructions. And so since it's two and under, we think it's been some time. Otherwise, he would have said, just find every newborn male child and kill that. That child. And then fourth, Joseph and Mary, and this is kind of, this is, Um, You'll see that this makes sense. Joseph and Mary, when they bring the offering to the temple in Luke chapter 2, according to the law, which would have been 40 days after Jesus was born, they sacrifice the offering of a poor couple. They bring a dove. And if it had happened that the Magi had already visited them, they would have not brought a poor offering because they're going to actually receive some money, quite a bit of money from the Magi, and they would have been able to give a better offering. So those four reasons say, if it's okay, don't throw out all your Hallmark cards and don't trash your nativity scenes. It's all right, but they don't belong there at the same time. So right there when it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, it just gives us tons and tons of information that we actually think we know, but it's not completely true. Now something else, these magi come and they, who are they? Now tradition an Armenian tradition tells us that the Magi of Bethlehem are Balthazar of Arabia, Melchior of Persia, and Gaspar of India. Three very distinct places. How did they all end up together? Well, we know that um, there was a, a uh, university, actually, in Babylon in the first century. We have it from archeological digs. We, can, we know that that happened and that people from all over the world that wanted to study stars in archeology, span we've seen that they, with the digs, that they are there in Babylon. Now, other than that, though, it's not easy to identify the Magi because the word Magi is kind of a, you get a mixed bag with it. They seem to be very honorable in this story in Matthew chapter 2 and the use of the word here in, for Magi. But the only other place that you see this word is in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 13. In those two places, Acts chapter 8 is a guy named Simon. Acts chapter 13, there's a dude named Elemas. In both of those instances, they're called sorcerers. It's translated, That's the same Greek word. And it's very, very negative. So these folks, um, although they seem admirable and so, so, you know, in the nativity scene, they seem great. But everywhere else that we seem to have any idea who they are, if we use the same word and it shows up in the Greek, they're seen super negative. In fact, Paul with Elemas in Acts chapter 13, he's going to say, you're evil and, you're gonna, and God is going to make you blind. And bam, he goes blind. So um, these guys, although it's, very, it's a very mixed bag about who they are. And so we don't really know very much about them truthfully. Now, we're told in other places, and our tradition tells us that they were kings. They probably weren't kings. Um, We're not sure where that happened, although it starts to show up that they were three kings as early as in the 200 200 ADs. So um, a couple of hundred years after that, I think that associated with kings singing and kings coming and visiting the Messiah that are mentioned in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures and especially in the Psalms, Maybe they they just kind of put them together and said there are kings. They said there's three of them. We don't even really know how many there were. And we just think three because that's how many gifts there were. But it could have been less and it could have been more. Verse 2. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, they ask? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there's much debate, of course, around this star and what is it and And what in the world are they talking about? There are certain people who would dismiss the miraculous and they say, well, that just didn't happen. That's just part of the myth around the Advent season. But the truth is actually that we can, because of computers, we can project back what did the skies look like around this time, given five years Plus or minus, what was all going on there? We already know there were eclipses. We also know that there was something called a conjunction. A conjunction is when some planets align in such a way that they make a very bright light. And that we know around the time of Christ, there, were, there was a conjunction where Saturn and Jupiter aligned themselves right next to each other. And that would have been a strange consta- in, strange thing in the, in the stars and may have gotten these guys' attention. We don't know really what they saw, um, but we can project pretty accurately what was going on. They say they've seen a star. When King Herod heard this, verse 3, he was disturbed. This word for disturbed is agitated, um, stirred up, ticked off. His response that there's a king born in Jerusalem... Even though he's towards the end of his reign, 40 years of a reign, even though he's towards the end of his reign, he is not happy that there's, a, there's, a, there's these rumors about a king being born. It says that even all Jerusalem is ticked with him. This is a, a picture of King Herod because like I said, he is one of, of the great kings of this time period, plus or minus minus three or 400 years, the great kings in Israel. Verse four, when he had called together all the people people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked the teachers of the law where the Messiah was to be born. And they don't even hesitate. They know exactly, they're familiar with the Scriptures, and they say, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is that how do the the Magi finally find Jesus? Now, our, our typical answer would be a, what? A star. They followed a star. But the particulars actually come from the scriptures. Okay? And I, I just, I just want to kind of, there might be somebody that's doing this, but I know a lot of people who are waiting on God to give them a star or thunder or some miraculous happening. When the truth of the matter is, if you really want to find Christ, The scriptures are your best place to begin that journey. Just begin reading the four biographies about the life of Christ, the first four books of the New Testament. Verse 7, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. Now he's being sneaky. He figures out what's going on. He's able to get the information from them. Listen, Herod... King Herod, Herod the Great, is if not the worst scoundrel in the whole Bible, he's got to be in the top three. This guy had 11 wives, 43 children. In one instance, it's recorded that he got angry with one of his children and drowned him in the family pool. Well, can you imagine having a nice afternoon in the pool with your kids and one of them ticks you off and you just hold them under? Matter of fact... Some of us can't imagine that, but we didn't do it. Herod did it. At one point, he had a dispute with some religious leaders and some political leaders all in the same room. He got so angry, he locked the doors, called his soldiers in, and locked the doors and told his soldiers, kill every person in the room. When he knew that he was close to his death, he had his soldiers arrest all of the influential people in the area of Jerusalem, take them down to the Hippodome in Jericho and lock them in there. And he said, on the day I die, I know I'm going to die in the next week or so. When I die, I kill everybody in the Hippodome so that when my death happens, it will be a day of mourning in Israel. I mean, the guy is, is the villain, the worst of the worst. We expect him to be a representation of who God is, and instead we get exactly the opposite. Verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me. Lies. So that I may too may go and worship him. Lies. After they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, right now, Matthew begins to put this juxtaposition of of where you think you'll find God and where actually God shows up. We see that when Herod hears of of this king being born, he is disturbed, read, ticked off, angry, beside himself. The Magi, who you expect would not have any kind of reverence towards God, They are overjoyed on coming to the house. There it is, on coming to the house, not the barn. They saw the child, that's our word I mentioned earlier that is used for children, not for uh, newborns, with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You cannot help but notice the difference between where you think godly people are and who ends up being godly. It is, you know, the whole proverbial statement of don't judge a book by its cover, this part of the Advent story just screams that to us. Herod wants to kill, and the Magi want to worship. Where you expect to find God with Herod and the religious leaders, you find evil. Where you expect to find indifference with the Magi, there is worship. Now, remember Matthew. We learned as we've been working our way through these first couple of chapters of Matthew that Matthew is trying to make sure that he presents the history of who Jesus is in such a way that the Jewish nation will embrace him as Messiah. He goes through a whole first chapter talking about where he's from and who his father is and the family lineage to show that he's from the right tribes and the right lineage. It's the birth of Christ is introduced to us, and now he's trying to do this. But here's the thing the Magi don't help him. You get that, right? If the, if the Jewish nation is gonna read this, and it's gonna be a, the audience for the book of Matthew is primarily Jewish originally. They're going to see the word magi and they're going to immediately dismiss this whole story. And yet it's included right here for us. 2,000 years later plus, here we are still including the magi. And the gifts that they bring are not just you know, nice gifts. If you look at them a little more closely, gold is the ultimate gift that is presented to a king. Frankincense is, is from a tree and it, it, it's used to make an incense that's, that's used while uh, worship is directed by a priest. And then myrrh is a, a gum resin that's used in making perfume and ointment that the, would be an anointing oil by, used by a prophet. The gifts are kind of like prophet, priest, and king. All of the things that the Messiah is supposed to come. And look who recognizes him that, as that the Magi. You see, I can tell y'all are not up in arms about this. It's just too familiar for you. This is scandalous. These people don't belong. They're wrong in every way. They have the wrong ethnicity, they're from the wrong country. They have the wrong religion, wrong educational background, wrong economic stand, status, wrong language, don't have the scriptures or at least don't have all of them. They, may, they apparently might have had part of them. They're just wrong. Wrong. And they don't add any credibility. And yet here we are still sitting the Magi right next to our shepherds on our mantle at home. What's what's God trying to do? Well, I I don't know for sure, but a couple of things that I felt like might be good encouragements for us. First, whatever the limitations that you listed in your mind when I said come up with four or five of them at the first of the service, whatever they were, they're nothing to compare to the Magi. There's just nothing. Nothing. I'm surprised the Magi even got an audience with the king. They must have bribed somebody. And we allow those limitations that we have to define what our futures can become. And those limitations that we we kind of fixate on actually end up holding us back more than the limitations actually would. I'm listening to a podcast by John Orberg, dear friend, and he introduced me to a, a man named Dr. Rick Blackman. He's a therapist, and he has this thing called the scale of acceptance. And he says that as we bring it up, and you'll see it on the screen. On the scale of acceptance, down in the lower left-hand corner where you see reject and resist, that's where most of us spend our time, around our limitations, We reject them, we're angry about them, we resist them, we're ticked off about how God made us and how it's expressing itself in our lives. But as you move up the arrow towards accepting and embracing your limitations, that's where you move towards health. And he says that what... He says that most of the people that he's working with, when they get stuck, they get stuck because they're down here in the left-hand corner and they're just fixated on something they can't. They feel like they cannot change. And he said, culture has no help for people here. If you're here in this room and you're, you're like down here in the bottom and, you're, and you say, yeah, I'm ticked off about this. I'm ticked off I don't have any hair on my head. And you fixate on that, and what will happen is culture will tell you you can transcend your limitations. See, if you remember when you were little, you would say things like, when I grow up, I'm going to be an astronaut. And your parents lovingly would pat you on the head and say, you go, girl, you can do anything you want. And we believed them. It's a lie. We can't do anything we want. There are some things you just will never be good at. Sorry. You're you're good at plenty if you just give yourself a chance. Some of you suck at math. I don't care how long you spend working at it. You're going to suck at math. Some of you can't really sing. I mean, nobody really tells you, but you know it. (laughs) And you're never going to be an opera star. I don't care how hard you try. Now, some things you can overcome. And I'm certainly not talking about institutional things that you should accept and embrace. I'm talking about the the kinds of things that our, our identity is centered around. Well, how we are physically, emotionally, intellectually, mentally. Those kinds of things. You just can't, you can't transcend some of your limitations. I know they talk about Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was on the JV team his sophomore year. And then on his varsity the next year, he worked really hard that year and then he got great. He grew four inches. But... God is not saying, let me help you transcend those kinds of things like that. But if we will take our limitations and surrender them and embrace them, what will actually happen is that they become these opportunities for amazing things to happen in our lives and for worship to be the component of our life. Take a, bring up that next slide, and you can see that as we work our way up, we're just about to do it. There we go. As we work our way up towards embracing some of our limitations and surrendering them to God, God, you know I'm not any good at this, but I, I, I give you myself. I surrender myself to you. What that leads to is worship, and that's what the what magi do. Listen, they came from Babylon. That's 600 miles away of super difficult travel. Desert roads, bandits. These guys aren't Nomads. There's students at a university in Babylon. They probably don't even like to camp. Can't wait to get to some place. They probably don't even like camels. Right? But they surrender this thing, and you see that It's in my limitations, I wrote this down. It's in my limitations and the humility they bring that open me up to experience something greater than myself. The grace of God flows in where we are weak. And we spend our whole time trying to hide our weaknesses. Now, I don't know what's appropriate for you, but I just will tell you in my own life, the things that I don't really want you to see, as I allow you to kind of have a peek at them, God does more than I could ever imagine. And for me to stand up here and act like I'm not screwed up, y'all know I am, I know I am. It's just a waste of energy. And on that chart, if we fixate and get stuck down on the bottom, what happens is we actually become very narrow and very angry about who we are and how life has turned out. You know some people like this. All they do is gripe about who they are and who you are and how life is and who the president is and who the governor is. It don't matter. Something's wrong. wrong. All the time. Imagine if you could start to look at some of those limitations in your life and they become opportunities for worship. Our limitations do not limit God and what he wants to get done. And it only makes sense that he would do things this way if you think about it because he's not really, he's not really here to make you happy. He's here to make you more like Jesus. He wants you to walk the life of faith that you've embraced. And to do that, He's going to show up in your weaknesses in ways, as you surrender them to Him, He's going to show up in ways that's going to bring great joy to you. Maybe this analogy will help. Most of us don't dance. And it's not because we can't dance. We may not be able to dance well, but we can move to the rhythms somewhat. We don't dance because we're afraid of what people will say when they see us dance. And we miss the joy. Who cares what somebody else says about how you dance? When you ain't even gonna really see them anymore, we allow people we don't even like to handcuff us, cuff us, and keep us from the joy of life. And God is saying, "Would you would you trust me in this journey? Would you move up the chart and begin to surrender them to me and embrace some of the limitations that you're that you? I know you're unhappy about them. I know you wish you were taller or prettier or." hairier or thinner or smarter. One of the things that's been really applicational for me, this is, this is strange, but you guys know we're in transition and we're in the process of handing over the leadership of the church to J. Kim and I'm super thrilled about it, but every time I think about it, it reminds me of something. It reminds me I'm old and I don't feel old but I can't deny the date on my driver's license. And it's just an opportunity. Perhaps, perhaps my best decades are ahead of me. Maybe. Perhaps your best decades are ahead of you. And when you can begin to embrace your limitations and be thankful, worship, spontaneous worship becomes a hallmark of your life. Now, one more little thing that comes out of these guys is not only do we see these these folks that are incredibly limited, that God seems to use, because by the way, just so you know, these magi saved Jesus' life. Because next week, we're going to talk about they got to run. They got to run, and they got to run away all the way to Africa. They got no money to get there, except the Magi gave them the money. And It's going to sustain them in Africa for probably two years, a couple of years, while they hide out until this wicked Herod dude dies. It's not an insignificant rule that these, that these Magi are playing. They saved the life of of the Christ child. So one other group. As I'm talking about this, everybody, I think almost everybody in the room, would readily identify with our limitations and the way they hold us back. But there are some in the room who really identify with the Magi. When I said that they were wrong in every way, that's what you feel when you come into a church. Like, man, you... I don't, I don't understand this church thing at all. I am so far out. I don't, I don't believe what you're saying. I don't know why you do karaoke singing every week. I have no idea what the lighting of the candles means. I've never touched a Bible. I've never read one. I am wrong in every way to be a part of this group. And I would say, welcome. Welcome. You're more like us than you think. You're just in a different place along the journey. The Magi scream that there's nobody who's so different that they're not welcome into the family of God. Nobody, ever. Somebody can clap for that for sure. I mean, you're you're sitting here listening to a guy who never even went to church till he was 23. I never touched a Bible till I was almost 18. Never touched one, much less, I never read one. Why would I read? I never touched one. I can't remember ever seeing one. I made fun of Christians. And yet I can tell you that the day that the resurrection became real to me, I may be a Magi, I may not fit, but Christ rose from the dead and I can't deny it. And if he rose from the dead, he's the king of kings. He, I found what the Magi found. They didn't just find a king, they found the king of kings. And if you're here and you think, or you're listening or watching this and you think, I'm, I, I'm so far out, I can't deny that I'm interested because I'm watching I don't know why I keep coming back to this church. I do. Because it's the source of life. It's the source of life. And no one is so far outside of the reaches of God's grace that they're out. No one, ever. And the Magi just scream that to us. We're gonna have a worship service for Jesus the King when he's still an infant, and people from other countries that just now learned who Jesus was. Lead it. And when they take the offering, they're the only ones that give. Get out. It just screams to us, number one, your limitations are opportunities for the grace of God to pour in. Men and women, stop stop fighting against them and surrender them. And then those of you that might be feeling like this isn't for me, It's exactly for you because we're a bunch of magi who shouldn't be in. And yet we somehow got in by the grace of God. Stop running. Surrender and say yes to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, your grace extended towards us is beyond description. And the beautiful way that you've placed into the Advent story, um, these guys that travel from way far away and come and find so much more than they ever hoped for, even though by all the standards of the day, they should not have been allowed in. God, you embrace them. I think they spent the rest of their lives talking about this kid they met in Bethlehem and how he was going to change the whole world. Would you do such a work in us that we would stop grinding against the things that, we think are holding us back and see them instead as opportunities for you to pour grace into our lives we don't want to transcend our limitations we want we want to surrender them to you and see you use our limitations for your own good that they might be the sharpest tools that we have to talk to people about the God that loves them And then, God, if there are some that even as I'm praying, they're continuing to battle in their mind. No, I'm a magi. No, I don't fit. No, I'm I'm not supposed to be. God, would they just sense your love in them? They surrender to that love. Embrace the reality of the resurrection as payment for their sins. Come in. Change their lives. Set them on the path where you use a bunch of misfits who don't belong for your great glory. May it be so. May it be so. In Jesus' name.